Okay, welcome back to the Quantum Divide. This week, we've got a very exciting guest, but before before we introduce him, I just want to say welcome back, Steve. It's been three episodes since, since you've been away. I've had a great, great series of conversations with Harold Olivier from Inria, Shreyas Ramesh from Accenture, and Juan Marino from AWS. It's been pretty busy, pretty fun, so welcome back. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's been... A busy couple of months, I had to take a little hiatus, but here I am, <laughs> back again. Yes, good man. Okay, yeah, listen, before, before we start with today's guest, I want to just tell you about a personal quantum moment that I had, and it was actually meeting uh, this team that really got me personally into pursuing more knowledge in, in quantum technology. It was at a Cisco Live event, and I met a company called Quantum Optics Jenna. He told me all about their entanglement-based QKD, and it totally blew my mind, and I love talking about that, but that's who we're with today. So I'm lucky, very lucky to be joined by Kevin Fuchsil from Quantum Optics Jenner, who's the CEO of Quantum Optics Jenner. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks a lot. And it's a pleasure to be here and be part of your, your podcast. So we are really happy to have this opportunity. And it's really a pleasure that we bring you to the quantum side. I love to hear your story every time. Very good. Yeah. Great. Listen, let's start like we normally do, just to hear a bit about you. How, how did you get into quantum? What was your path to becoming a CEO of a company? And you know, let us know how it's going, and, and then we'll start with a few questions and go from there. Thanks. Yeah, happy to. I probably don't have a, a typical quantum career, I would say. So I start my PhD in semiconductor and nanostructuring technologies. I did my work in photovoltaics at the beginning and also my phd is in this field um after phd i got the opportunity uh, at the fraunhofer institute of applied optics and precision engineering in Jena to work in the field of strategy marketing and communication and uh, in there i was also responsible for some strategic projects and i think it was 2014 2015 when first things of quantum get also on our radar. We, uh, yeah, we thought about what can we do in this regards. We had the first project with a team of the Ikoki in Vienna at this time, 2015, which was dealing with an entanglement photon pair source, which should be space-proofed at this point. So also our co-founder, Oliver, uh, or my co-founder, Oliver Ritries, who is now a CTO, was heavily involved in this project. And there we get the first, let's say, connections to, to quantum, to all the stuff around uh, quantum communication, especially. And we recognized in 2018, I think it was, that the quantum market is maybe ready to have another startup. And we believed that we could play a role there. And so we decided to, to think about ideas. It takes us two years after this first thoughts to really found the company. So in 2020, we decided to, to move on. So we, in October, we found the company. Um, also in 2020, we start discussing our idea with first investors because we, we know it's a, it would be a, or it will be a deep tech company where you need some investment to really move on. So typically uh, you have to decide at the beginning if you want to do it, I'd say with your own money. So in, in 2020, we, we decided to, to move on getting investors on board the process there was quite fast so it just takes us three months to convince investors to, to get on board and run the company with us the good thing was with my activities in, in the strategy fields i also had the opportunity to coach some startups and do some innovation process stuff this helps a lot if you then do this by your own so you know all the let's say how to create a business model, this business model, canvas stuff, this value proposition stuff. And we've done this, let's say, uh, a year before we found the company and get also the idea of what a potential product has to look like. Because at the institute itself, we just had the entangled photon pair source. So this was the product what we are taking out of the, or not taking out what the experience we had as we started the company. And based on this, especially in the first year, we built up everything around, but I guess we will come to this in the later questions. Yeah. Bef before Steve chimes in, I know he's, he's chum chumping at a bit, 
I just wanted to ask, you, you started in semiconductors, but then you went into photonics. How was that transition or was it just natural because it's all part of yeah. atomic and, and photonic uh, physics yeah. after all? If you work in photovoltaics or solar cells, whatever technologies, it's every time a combination of semiconductor physics, photonics. And I work in the, in a department which deals with optical coatings. So typically it is, let's say the interconnection between the real world and the devices structuring or designing interfaces, which guide light to the thing or to the parts of devices where things happen, so electrically. So this was the, uh, the main issue there. So we, it was also a fun project. It was, it has some relations with nanostructured silicon. So there was also some kind of quantum because you can do, you can structure silicon in a way that it transits from an indirect semiconductor to a direct semiconductor. If you go to, let's say, dimensions of nanometers or less than a nanometer. This is also fun. So you get some experience in all those quantum effects if you're working in physics in general, I would say. So it's at least from for now, it's still every time a little bit spooky. If you think about this entanglement stuff, it's something you cannot imagine from your real ex life experience. So it's some, it, every time is really fun to explain it, especially to people who are not in this mathematical world or in the physics world. And, uh, because uh, then you see the reactions and this, that this quantum revolution, which we are in now is really something uh, which can change paradigms and it can change also how we use technologies. Because think about it, it's, we are now at the point where we can control or where we use single photons where we use qubits so the elementary particles so this is exciting i would say yeah i think especially it's not that easy to explain to people how entanglement works and what's so fascinating about it especially if you can't use mathematics or <laughs> the physical properties to explain it but, but it's very exciting times probably 10 years ago no one would imagine we have an ecosystem of quantum computing, quantum communication, which it leads me to the, the question next, I guess the first question from my side, it's not a technical question, but it's more on the business side. So a lot of the startup companies coming from UK, US, but you sense that Germany is a little slower. And I wonder what your impression is there. How is it getting investment in Germany, setting up the company in Germany? I know you've spread out by now to other countries, but it started in Germany, so maybe have some help, uh, some advice for others trying to navigate the ecosystem of Germany. Yeah, a, a very good question, and also I would say a uh, truth observation. So uh, I would say the, the German culture is not, let's say, the well known for uh, startup mentality. But I'm happy that we have at least some startups uh, running also in in Germany or starting in, in Germany. My suggestion for Anybody around who wants to do a startup, do it. Just do it. Do me the favor. Just do it. It's not so, so complicated. It's a lot of fun. And even if you, if it doesn't succeed, you will learn so many things for getting back to industry or doing other stuff. That's really a, a value which you, uh, you will get uh, out of this process at the end. I think uh, our learning was, especially for seed rounds, it's not too complicated to get funding in Germany. So you have so many partners and so many funding opportunities right now. Uh, you can start with typically BMBF projects. There is this EXIST fund, I would say, which is say, try to ensure us the transit from academia to, to a company in a, let's say, a longer way, I would say. But you also have investors who, who do uh, Great seed investments. So we have our seed investors. One from one is the Fraunhofer Tech Funds. There, it's a dedicated fund for Fraunhofer startups. Another one is the Beteiligungsmanagement uh, Thüringen, or short BMT, which is a fund especially for our uh, local area. And we have a third party uh, or third fund, Elas Technology Investments. They are private investors. I know them personally a long term and I could convince them that we are a cool startup. So we'd be have, happy to have them on board. But so as we have the, the seed round, we have to say no to other investors. So there, there are also plenty of other 
potential investors. The high-tech Gründer from Germany, GF, is available, which has also some great startups in the portfolio. So if you want to do this, just go, you don't have to be shy. So just go out, speak to investors, to funds. They are very open. If they believe you are a great team and you have a unique technology, I think you will get your round closed very soon. This is not a challenge, I would say. Or it's not the, uh, the challenge. You can solve this. Fascinating. L let's give you the stage now to talk about. I suppose actually I'm going to cheat and give you two questions. First of all, I'm interested about Jenna in Germany. So why Jenna? I, I, I've just Googled it quickly. Other search engines are available. And I, I read that it's a major center for optical and precision instruments and glass products. Is, is, does that have anything to do with why you're in Jena? And then if you could give us your overview of, of what it is your company is doing uh, when it comes to quantum yeah. networking. I know you have a number yeah. of different products and different industry verticals and maybe, you know, different go to market. So please walk us through yeah. all of that. We'd love to hear it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, why? Obviously, we, we, I study physics and also Oliver studied here. So we have also our families live, but that was not the main driver. The main driver was really uh, is well known uh, for photonics and optics. So we have, I think, 200 years of history in optics. In, in So it's the birthplace of Carl Zeiss, the company. It's also the birthplace of Otto Schott. And it's still an interesting story how you, if you think about how the companies are funded or getting to the point where they are now. Are we limited in time in the podcast then? Or can I go a little bit around this? No. Yeah, <laughs> it's go for a, it. Uh, it's an interesting story which demonstrates how, how innovation can happen. So it was uh, Carl Zeiss who found his company building up microscopes or optical instruments. And at some point, he during his manufacturing, it was trial and error. You take some lenses and you put them together and you have a look if it is working or not. And he comes to the conclusion, maybe that's not the smartest way to do things. And he decides to go to a university, to the University of Vienna, and ask a professor there, which was Ernst Appel. And, and he asked Ernst Appel, hey, can you help me with some mathematics? Can you find some mathematics to, to actually calculate things, shapes of lenses, for example, or what are the limitations of devices? And everybody who is involved in photonics, who they know the uh, upper limits for resolutions of microscopes. So this is the output, the basic theory. And on the other hand, he gives the company some kind of mathematical tools to design optical instruments. And this was a starting of, let's say, a very interesting story because they get, they work close together. Upper also takes the lead of size after, let's say, car size was was not available or retired. And he really did a lot at the, say, I think at the end, uh, more than 30,000 people worked in Jena around optics and photonics, uh, which is quite a lot. If you think about a, a city size of 100,000 uh, inhabitants, there is a lot of competencies around uh, Jena in, in optics, from optical design to manufacturing to testing. And so all this is here and uh, you can see this or not see, but you can feel this if you are doing physics around and uh, doing some networks, also networking stuff around. Many, there are over 100 companies dealing with optics and photonics in this area, in this local area, which gives you, let's say, a lot of experienced people. And for us, we, we strongly believed in, as we found the company, that it will be a good sign if we take the name of the city where we found the company into our company name. So we are really proud to have quantum optics because something which uh, which stands for competencies in optics and photonics. And to uh, to maybe get the shift to your second question. So for us, we really we truly believe that the quantum technologies will be the enabler of the future, and we also want to be part of that future. And for us, it's in everything we do, it's important to, to use quantum technologies in a way that we can create a quantum added value. We don't want to do quantum because quantum is fancy, because uh, we believe that quantum will bring you some value to products, to solutions, which you cannot achieve with classical solutions. This is, this we truly believe. And the first product we uh, think is most successful or is 
there, there is a low risk of, uh, of failing is in the field of quantum communication. Our company, or we see in the future different markets for us. So the biggest or the most interesting right now is quantum communication. We also have some activities right now in the field of quantum imaging. Mm -hmm. And we also believe that in the future, especially if you think about quantum computers, there might be niches for us where we can help with our technologies to, to improve or to enable quantum computing networks. Let's put it this way. So these are the three pillars for us where we want to, to do business. But the most interesting right now is for sure quantum communication. So a quantum optics here at the moment focusing on quantum communication, specifically in quantum key distribution. Uh, as far as I, as far as I know, you can expand on that. And I'm just curious of what differentiates your, pro your, your approach from companies who are also performing uh, quantum key distribution as a product. Yeah. So as you already said in the introduction, so we believe that the approach of entanglement is the right one to, to go for in quantum key distribution. So for all the, the listeners outside, so quantum key distribution is let's say frames the the concept of delivering symmetric encryption keys to certain parties with the help of quantum technologies and in our case it means the the source for these keys is the entangled photon pair source at the end it generates an entangled or a qubit state which which is entangled in a way that if you have now two parties, let's call them Alice and Bob to work in the framework of the ecosystem. <laughs> and uh, if you now send the photons to Alice and Bob, so one to, photo, uh, one to Alice, one to Bob, and if they measure the state or the, let's say, the state, they will, let's say, break the entanglement or the entanglement is, is, is done at this point. And the beauty is the measurement result, if this is really entangled, they don't have to talk about the results. They already know what the other side will have measured. And this gives you the opportunity to create or to distribute keys in a way that you also will find attackers within these, the line of transmission. Because if you measure a single photon or an entangled photon, you break the, the entanglement and you cannot clone this anymore and create the same state. And this is the for us, this is the main value of this QKD approach. You have a, a source of um, high entropy because it's also a quantum process which we are using to, uh, to generate those uh, qubit states. You distribute these qubit states in a way that you will identify any eavesdropper. So you can make sure that the keys you receive at the end will be highly secure. And uh, you can use those keys for your data encryption. So that's the, the basic approach of, of our company. And we believe at the moment we have maybe the most advanced complete entanglement-based QKD system. There are many companies also around doing other uh, cool stuff. There are uh, CVQKD, there is DVQKD uh, with prepared measure approaches. At the moment, the, there is not, let's say the market is, is in the making, I would say. I, I every time tell, tell others, you don't fight over the cake if it's not bacon, there is also a lot of corporations and we have, we know probably the most companies around and discuss things with them. And we will see how this will, will be in the future, how, how this will be developed in the future. For us, we personally, or we as a company really believe entanglement is a really nice approach because it has some advantages in terms of assumptions, especially for a quantum channel, because we only have two photons and this makes life, especially for the security proof, a little bit easier. Like I have a follow-up question then. So that sounds, people might think about the system and say, okay, take them a distribution. It's such a complex tool to have or such a complex resource, but what's the hardest part of distributing entanglement? Do you think, is it preparing the entanglement, sending the entanglement over the channel, measuring the entanglement? What's the biggest hurdle of sending entanglement between devices? Do you think? To be honest, I think we have one of the simplest system setup you can ever imagine in terms of uh, QKD devices. So it's really just a, a simple entangled photon pair source and then those measurement devices. So the hardest challenge for us is it's not the physics around that because we have there are so many 
papers around and so many research groups with really cool approaches to doing multiplexing entanglement stuff. And so this is really fun to see. Also, the hardest part for us was getting the system to a 24-7 operation so that you don't need a physics PhD or backgrounds in engineering to run the system, actually. So the main challenges for us were two. So one was how can we synchronize two clocks, which are way apart in the easiest way. And therefore we, yeah, we, this was a hard one. This was the first step. And the second step was if you distribute entanglement over networks and you don't go over real fibers, those fibers are not, they will not stabilize the system. So, or let's put it this way. If you have a, we need entanglement polarization. And uh, if you distribute a dedicated or a special or a fixed polarization over a fiber, it will not, you will not measure this fixed polarization at the other end. So there will be some changes. And uh, those changes are, they happen all the time. They depend on pressure, on temperature, on whatever. And this was the second part. How can we compensate in a smart way those changes in polarization? And this takes us over a year to develop the technologies around to en enable this at the end, which is now also the coolest thing for us because uh, we have now the tools to really compensate for changes and run the, the system in the 24-7 way. This is really the hard stuff. So if you come from academia, there are really smart people around and they do great stuff. But for us as company, the hard stuff was to, uh, to find an approach or find a solution to do this 24-7 without an engineer turning things, changing parameters, et cetera. That's fascinating, Kevin. I'm just going to recap some of that. And I'm also going to go back to the hardware because I want to go up the stack, I think. And it sounds like the complexity for you is around the software, the operationalization, the simplification of control and those types of things. But ultimately, the way the entanglement generation works, correct me if I'm wrong, is you have some kind of a pump photon, which is sent into a crystal of some kind, which then splits it into two lower power, lower wavelength entangled photons, which are a bell pair. They're an EPL pair of some kind. That's my understanding. And then those are sent down the two different links to Alice and Bob. Have I described that well enough? Or is, is it, have I missed that huge chunk? But the wavelength is not shorter, it's longer, to be honest. That's the uh, only okay. mix up in this case. But yeah, uh, so the, uh, the process uh, we are using is called SPDC, so it stands for uh, Spontaneous Parametric Down Conversion. Uh, it's a process which is well known in uh, nonlinear optics. Uh, so if you do some conversion of laser light, this is typically the way to do this. And in our case, it means you have a pump photon, uh, has a certain possibility or probability to be transferred into uh, photons within a crystal. So it's a very low number, which you transfer, but the energy con uh, conversation and also momentum conversation has to take place for sure, but it can happen. And in our case, to, to create an entanglement or create this, this qubit state, we use a configuration which is called cross-crystal. So now we do a, a quick conducting experiment. So just imagine you have a pump laser, which where you the oscillating field of the wave is horizontal, right? So it, it oscillates in horizontal direction and it now interacts with the first crystal. You have a question then. Kevin, why is it called a, why is it called a pump photon or a pump laser? Uh, oh, that's a good question. I don't know, to be honest. It's classic. Uh, oh, okay. It pumps. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> That's Got now it. for optics Sorry, photonics. You learn it uh, during your studies this way. So it's every time pump photon, signal idler photon. But I just want to avoid signal idler photon because it's maybe uh, too specific. Uh, but yeah, so you have a, you have a laser. Uh, you just can imagine you have a laser pointer, right? A very sophisticated laser pointer, which shines through the crystal. And now this this oscillation is horizontal, right? It interacts with the first crystal and has a certain probability to arrange those two photons, which are uh, longer wavelengths. Or so typically you can imagine, say you pump with 400 and you can get to 800 nanometer photons out of this. So now we have, or we take, we have a second crystal, which is rotated by 90 degrees to the first one. And 
now we have vertical polarized lights, right? Uh, this shine or this goes through the horizontal polarized or to the first crystal because it will not interact. Those crystals are designed in a way uh, that they will not uh, interact with, with these photons. And so now the magic happens or these SPDZ process happens in the second crystal. And you have also two photons. They are not entangled yet. Entanglement comes into place or the, this qubit uh, generation comes into place. If you uh, now have a pump laser, which has a 45 degree angle to a horizontal and vertical. So it's just in the middle of this, of this. And in this case, you don't know where the magic happens because there's a probability of 50% that this will happen in the first or in the second. Since there are only two photons and they are created at the same time, at the same space, you have to measure. That's the only way to do this. And if you will look this on a, on a mathematical way, and then you, you get those spell state stuff and you, you see the whole beauty. But for the listeners, it's this kind of simple. You just go inside this architecture with 45 degrees and then the magic happens. For sure, you have to do some other stuff to compensate for, let's say, biofringing effects, et cetera. But this is then the, that's where we come into play. The team is really great and they know how to do this and building this up that you can distribute entanglement up to 100 kilometers. Great. Sorry, Steve, I'm going to jump in again. <laughs> Too many questions trying to get out of my head. So let's talk about the other end. You mentioned timing. Let me start with quantum memories. Right. The way traditional networking works is if you're sending something over a, a network and you maybe the applications need to wait or like you have some kind of buffer in there, right? Which where you can receive information, you can queue it somehow, and that can happen anywhere in the network. Now with optics, with photonic qubits, ultimately my understanding is that there aren't really any quantum memories yet that can hold photons effectively. There's a few crazy experiments out there that I've heard about, but it feels this is one of the challenges you've had to solve, right? And the challenge is that Alice and Bob need to receive the photon photons exactly the same time. And that's why you have, yeah, please correct me on this. And that's no, why you have a very accurate synchronization between Alice and Bob's yeah. devices so that they can perform their measurement on the photons as they received to do the QKD calculation and work out that part of the key. Maybe we have to, uh, to differentiate at this point a little bit. Quantum memories or quantum repeaters the purpose of them is to distribute entanglement over longer distances, right? So in our case, or in our setup, we don't need a quantum repeater or we, we don't work in this scheme. So it's really distributing two photons to create a symmetric key on both ends or on, on, on entities who want to communicate without the, the repeater stuff so far. So this is for sure interesting. There are many uh research organizations investigating in this also some first startups we see on the horizon investigating quantum repeaters quantum memories and for those purposes i guess you need some kind of storage or let's say longer times to to have the photons there but in our case uh, we just have to synchronize so it's a little bit easier we just have to synchronize two clocks to do uh, coincidence measurements we just need to to lock them to each other and as I mentioned before, so how we do this, we, if you create the photons, right? I mentioned that this happens in this, those crystals and there you have at the same time. So this process is uh, completely stochastic. So, so we don't have a, a system with a fixed repetition rate. So the creation of the photons is something we cannot influence when this happens, but if it happens, the two photons will be created at the same time, right? And uh, then they are distributed to uh, those entities and they will have, or if you look on a stream of those photons, you can find the pattern. Um, and that's how we do uh, those synchronization. We, we look on the fingerprints of those measurements. If you have, say you have uh, one second of measurement, can do some uh, correlations and uh, you will find a peak where let's say most of the signal has the same pattern. With this, we are able to synchronize our system 
to a value which is in the region of the jitter of our detectors. So we're talking now about 50 picoseconds, maybe 100 picoseconds as synchronization rate, which is quite interesting, especially for network guys, because they, uh, for 5G, 6G applications, you need sub-nanosecond synchronization, which is maybe some advantage or some quantum added value we can bring in the future also in, into, the, into this game. But the reason or the, the, the process we are using is really the, the generation of the quantum signals itself for the synchronization. So you do, don't need additional hardware typically to run those synchronization process. But it's different to this quantum memory stuff. It's just locking the systems that you can do a coincidence windows or coincidence measurements. So our coincidence windows or the, the time frame where we are looking for uh, events is just one nanosecond. And for sure, you have to synchronize better than a nanosecond to do those uh, coincidence measurements, right? So coincidence measurement for all those who are not familiar with physics is this and Bob measure at the same time, and the time is this one nanosecond window, an event. This would be a coincidence. Got it, thanks. And I was thinking about photons being received at different times. But I think in this case, on a, certainly on a point-to-point link, you rely on the speed of light and therefore you can rely on the coincidence uh, measurements. Yes. Thanks. Uh, I wanted to paint a little bit different picture because I think, then maybe I suspect you have a vision of entanglement distribution. There's three ways to distribute entanglement. I think they're thinking of the one where you have a, cent- a centralized node sending qubits at both ends. But it seems like at Quantum Yana, they have Alice sending half of the entanglement out to Bob. And this is why it's only two clocks, if I'm not mistaken. It sounds like that. It seems like the entanglement is generated to Alice and half is sent to Bob rather than a third node generating entanglement to Alice and Bob. Uh, there's also the option that Alice and Bob both create entanglement and send it to the center. And then yeah, that's where the quantum memory, uh, in this case, where, where, so you have Alice and Bob and maybe somebody in the middle uh, who receive the photons. In this case, you need a quantum memory to match the, or to, to get a correlation between those two sended entangled states. So that's for sure there you need a quantum memory or quantum repeater, how, how you call it. It's maybe a, um, a different story. But in our case, the entanglement distribution is from one source. It can be in the middle of Alice and Bob. We called our QKD also source-independent QKD because you don't have to trust the source because we will measure and if it is an entanglement source. You can see this in build state measurements if this is a truly entanglement source or if this is something which is, let's say, generated from a third party. So this you can find because you can prove that you are in the quantum regime and not in the classical regime. This we will find with our measurements. And so the source can be in the middle, but typically from a practical perspective, uh, we had the situation that often the source is at either Alice or Bob's side located because typically our customers, they don't have a dedicated room in the middle. So they typically have two data centers, for example, and then they connect them with the help of the entanglement. So now, okay, so we, we talked a bit about the memories. Uh, so it seems overcoming the distance limitations requires the quantum memories unless you go, I mean, there's other options potentially go into space, use satellites, but there's still, there's an upper bound on how far space communication can get you. How do you see the future for quantum communication for overcoming? Do you believe in quantum repeater technology or do you think something something else will happen? Maybe go right to direct transmission with error correction or what do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. And the answer would be, I don't know, to be honest. I see multiple scenarios. If you think about, or let's assume we, we have a quantum repeater technology, right? So what would be the use case? The use case would be we, we go through longer distance, let's say we go to 200, 400, 600 kilometer distribution of entanglement and doing QKD. Then you can ensure that, let's say, A talks to DEF, whatever, without the knowledge of the key in between, right? So this would be a, a, a very interesting use case. But actually, I also see that it's maybe easier or faster to build up a trusted node network, right? So where you have A, B, C, V, E, knowing the key material, and but you they are under control of you or somebody who you trust. It's maybe easier to build up something like that. And, and 
using these architectures for building up networks in the future. That's probably, or we, we see this easier to achieve than distributing or building up a quantum memory, quantum repeater infrastructure. But uh, of course, there might be use cases which it's needed then, right? For us, right now, we don't see a direct business case in the next one to, let's say, three years. Going over this period, maybe it's also interesting to have a, a product there. But so far as a startup, and you, if you have investors, they are quite happy if you have some revenue. And we don't expect to have revenues so far with quantum repeater or quantum memory technologies because this is uh, very academic right now. Of course, there are some startups as well in this field, and I really appreciate that they are there. But for us, we decided to to focus right now on this quantum communication or QKD product at the end. And also, if you think about classical telecommunication, everybody is, is talking about the limits of QKD, but at the end, also classical telecommunication is not a, possible to uh, transmit over thousands of kilometers. You have amplifiers in between. Yes, you have amplifiers. That's now the, the case for quantum. You cannot amplify that because it's quantum, right? So you, will, you have to measure and then send it again and you will destroy the entanglement or the measurement itself. So that's the difference now. And But I, I think or we see at the moment that the clients we have or the scenarios we see uh, will be with those trusted nodes at the beginning. And then maybe use cases come on top where you go longer distance, but it's not unmanageable to have trusted nodes in between, at least from our perspective. Yeah, so thank you, Kevin. I, one one thing that um, occurred to me was around the fact that there are no standards yet. Apart from the protocol operations and how QKD works and key generation and so on, those kind of uh, mechanisms and mathematics have been around for decades. When it comes to the hardware functionality, the transparency of the configuration, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, what's your stance on making things more open? And, and I guess it's it's in your customer's interest to know what's going on inside the the uh, infrastructure that you're providing them. So what's your stance on that? Okay. Uh, good question. So we, we really appreciate the work standardization organization have done so far. So I think Etsy has done a, a very good job to uh, define interfaces for the interconnection of let's say, QKD hardware and classical IT hardware. So interfaces, how can we bring our quantum keys to encryptors or whatever wants to have the quantum key? So this is, I think, defined. And also other hardware developers have done some protocol stuff to implement quantum keys or external keys to their, to their hardware. So this is something which is already solved, I would say. Uh, standardization is, say, if you compare now QKD concepts, then it's maybe getting a little bit more complicated because, let's say, there are so many technologies around. So you have uh, KD, uh, you have QKD, uh, you have entanglement-based QKD. So you cannot use our system, for example, with a CV system. So this will not work. But see, uh, we, we will see how this will evolve in the, uh, in the future. We also see some, if you look on IT infra or IT hardware right now, you also have this issue, right? So a system which you buy from one provider will maybe not work with another one. Uh, we even have the case right now, or last week, uh, where we set up a demonstration system with SFP modules, where you think they are well-defined, the interface is clear, but uh, also there, it's not the case. So uh, we cannot connect to uh, SFP systems because they're not from the same manufacturer. Even there, it's happening. And you also see this for QKD devices. So they, it's maybe hard to use, let's say, one part of Quantum Optic Xena QKD system and doing the distribution to another QKD provider. This maybe will not happen. Uh, but from the interface point of view, there, I think we are also well aligned. We have done a, a very nice demonstration at a conference in Hannover a couple of weeks ago with three other QKD providers. And the key management system was able to speak to everybody. And the setup was quite fast. So this was done in six hours, I would say. And you can use those technologies already. So from this perspective, the integration into existing IT infrastructure is doable. So this 
can happen already now. So there are many activities from different companies, different uh, institutions to make this happen. And this already works. And another point for us is for sure the, the question of the certification. So outside of standardization, it's how to certify such a product. And there we see a lot of activities right now. Many groups and institutions are think about how can we certify products? How can we enable or make sure that the security which QKD will provide uh, is really on the implementation level the same? Like, just, I mean, QKD in general, if you want to attack this, it's probably the, the implementation of the QKD system where you have the radio liberty possibilities or where you have to be very carefully that you don't do something stupid. But this is already in, in an investigation, other investigation. It's always a challenge to come up with standards and get people to obey the standards and uh, start working with those devices to make sure that they're working properly as they're defined. Uh, but we mentioned uh, in, the, in your answer, you mentioned about the future. So I'll talk a little bit about what's the future for quantum Vienna. So I know the entanglement Right now that you've described as point to point or two party, two party entanglement is a vision to do multi-partite entanglement to absorb some of these other protocols that require GHZ states across multi-nodes, like anonymous communication, for example. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And we believe that QKD has to go beyond a point, to be honest, it really comes into we have to talk about networks and complex networks, not only point-to-point thing. And what we have done in the past was not the, the crazy stuff with, let's say, multiplexing or yeah, using different wavelengths in, in one source. It was really the easy things first. And the easy thing was just using beam splitters to doing multi-party QKD. As we put a beam splitter inside one of the photon arm or the, the arm of your entanglement, and you can have multiple Alice or multiple warps, however you want to, to set up something like that. And that's also our best selling product right now. So it's really <laughs> building up systems with two Alice modules and one warp or three Alice modules and one warp or one Alice and two warp, something like that. What's now very interesting for certain parties to investigate the possibilities. And there we see for us also the future of building up this setups where you have entanglement distribution to create quantum keys. And beyond that, so beyond this simple beam splitter setup with doing multiplexing or let's say using the, the full spectrum of the, of the uh, distribution of your photons and cutting this into separate pieces and then distribute those pieces to different parties, that's the next level for us where we have some projects right now to develop stuff, right? This is the way I think many parties will go, going to multiple parties, complex networks, and really, as I said, bringing quantum values to more than two, two entities. This is where we have to go, I think. And because then also the price of the QKD system scales differently than, let's say, to buy a, build a, a second link, you don't have to purchase a second QKD system, you just have to purchase a measurement device, for example. That's where, where it's getting very interesting. I know we're nearing the top of the hour. I wanted to ask maybe a slightly more technical question about how do you see the challenge of overcoming using shared fiber for both classical quantum? I know there's a lot of challenges with Raman scattering. and It's not an easy problem to solve. It's very academic at the moment, but seems essential yes. that to sell to customers that don't want to install additional fibers. What do you think? Yes, we also see this at the moment. So there are different voices. So there are voices who telling us we have enough fibers, don't care about it. Just give us a quantum or we have a, a quantum channel and then we do everything on that. But we also see, especially for enterprise business or B2B models, they typically have, let's say, only a, a fiber pair and they don't want to, to rent another one. So we heavily investigating this right now. So multiplexing is for sure a very interesting topic. It's doable, I would say, but as you mentioned, you have so many things taken into account. If you go on a real network uh, with a lot of 
different colors and uh, a lot of light <laughs> doing single photon measurements, right? Uh, you see everything in such a system and you have to, to make sure that you filter very good. So you're doing some special tweaks to, uh, to avoid interconnections, etc. But it should be doable. Beauty of the, the approach we have is we are quite flexible in wavelengths. So we can design the, the whole system in a way to, to go to different wavelengths. You can go to the O-bands, you can go to a dedicated band. You maybe don't need the classical or the, the, the actually beta communication. So this is now under investigation also for us to really have a system in the future, which maybe fits also to those needs. Sounds like you're looking at more real world implementation. You're looking at scaling systems to support the needs of your customers. It's really interesting stuff that you've got going on. So, so Kevin, I've become aware of um, the governmental stance on QKD in the US, in the UK. I'm not sure what the stance is in Germany, but I guess it, it does, the, N, the NCSC and NIST don't seem to be all in on QKD, put it as simply as that. And I, I'm interested to know your thoughts on that. Because obviously that change, that really significantly changes the market for you. We see, and probably this is not a secret if I tell this. So the activities in Asia are quite, uh, quite, quite good. You have GKD implementations in backbone links in China, for example. You have the Mishu's mission, in, which is also done by China. You have a very active community in, in Singapore, for example, also some activities in South Korea. So I would say they are leading right now all the implementation activities. On our point of view, especially for Europe, is there is some kind of commitment from also governmental side, right? So you have the European quantum communication infrastructure activities called short UQCI, where all the member states of the European Commission committed to build up an uh, infrastructure based on QKD, which is a huge thing in our point of view. So it's really good to see all the activities around in different countries, different approaches, different test beds, and different deployments. And then let's say you have the, the statement of the NSA and NIST in the US, which in my perspective, let's say, limits the activities of research organizations and also startups in the US uh, in the past years. There are quite some startups around, but I, I guess they have they have to fight against the opinion of NSA in this all the time. And um, maybe they are not as, as advanced as they could be if they really have the support also there. But um, right now, we also see some interest in the US. So uh, a couple of Months ago, we also decided to yeah, start a, a donor company in the US as well because of that. So we, we believe our product can be a, a very good market fit in Europe and in, in North America as well. So these are the main regions we are focusing right now because maybe the, we will see some changes also in the, in the, in the statement of, of those entities because the, the at some point, they are right. If you're talking about QKD, the implementation of of the QKD hardware is where it will be decided also if this is a secure system or is it if it if you have some lack of of security, and uh, that's why you have to be careful for sure. And we are aware of this. We investigate different approaches and to make sure that this will be a, a product for those or which fits those concerns which will be a stable product at the end. So US at the moment, I think, is a little bit behind Europe in quantum communication. It's a totally different story in, under, in other fields, but in quantum communication, Europe is quite active right now. It's the European Commission. It's also the German government invests heavily in, in quantum communication activities. There are big projects around. So one is called QNET. The other one is called Squad. There are big consortiums with many players leading around quantum communication. Great, thanks. Believe it or not, I was actually doing a little bit of research around around what's how busy academia has been, papers, patents, and citing and stuff over the last few years for quantum communication, quantum networking. And you're right, China was a ratio of something like four or five to one in terms of um, those activities. So. They're definitely ahead in this domain. Are you right? That's interesting, isn't it? 
how that's really occurred. And may, maybe the regulation, maybe the position of governments is a key part of that. So I could wrap it, but I think I did have one more question. Yeah, so I'm jumping back a little bit. So Steve, you mentioned multipartite UKD. You mentioned GHZ states, which are three qubit entangled states. I know about the, the protocols for QKD, EB84, there's B92 as well, I think. I haven't gone into detail on, on, on them too much above and beyond what you've said on this podcast, but when it comes to the three qubit state, are you and your company working on protocols potentially that can leverage multipartite states? Or is there enough, are there enough protocols in the market that have been invented by other people that um, are enough to just provide the infrastructure to serve them? So right now we have a look on that, I would say, but as a company, you have limited resources, I would say. You have to balance this somehow, but we are aware of those concepts as well. We try to be supportive or active in research projects with new, let's say, new source designs or new, new source concepts, new protocol concepts and learning from actually the academia if this is something for the future or if this is something which is purely academic. So, and if we come to the conclusion um, that this might be something for the future, we have to put resources on that as well. It's a very interesting uh, to see uh, those other concepts, but for now we don't plan something as a product in the near future. So it's observing, I would say, right now. Cool. Thank you very much. I will wrap it this time. So <laughs> that's it. Thank you very much for your time. That was a fascinating conversation. And that's the usual whole bunch of questions in my head still, but maybe for next time. Thank you very much, Kevin. Happy to be back. <laughs> so, <laughs> if, you have, if you have some uh, further questions, feel free. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Okay. Thanks a lot for your time and for answering all those questions. Thanks. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain, especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform. And I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word. It would really help us out. Okay.